0: You know, the more I parent, the more I realize something. My children, and I think for many children, but for my daughter in particular, they don't really learn what to do, but they're often taught what not to do, you know. When a child is watching, hearing, listening to something uh, objectionable, I think we as parents, and especially when we catch them in the act, what happens? The typical response is usually a strong, don't do that, or don't listen to that, or don't watch that. And that reprimand oftentimes it's followed by with a punishment of some sort, isn't it? And it's interesting because we can say, well, you know, kids make mistakes. They're humans too. They're sinful. They're depraved. They're a bunch of reprobates. They're up to no good. Um, they mess up, and we as parents, we clean up. That's, that's just the natural order of things, right? They mess up, and we clean up. But here in Proverbs 22, chapter, uh, chapter 22, verse 6, it says something really interesting. It says, Train up a child in the way he should go. Train up a child in the way he should go. And when he's old, he will not depart from it. We're told to train them in the way they should go. But instead of training, we're instead practicing reactionary parenting. You get what I'm saying? We're doing reactionary parenting. I'm guilty of reactionary parenting. Now what often happens is that if a child learns that what they're enjoying is bad... They will most likely create kind of a shame-based identity that says, Oh, I, I like this bad thing. Therefore, I am bad. And in the end, the confusion, shame-based identities actually drive them towards even more bad behavior rather than from it. Now, I believe as Christians, we're in a similar situation. We all know lust and things of the flesh are bad, right? We all know what we should do, but how do we get there? How do we actually find freedom from these things that are plaguing us? It's like if you're if you're lost and you go to someone and say, you know, how can I get to Washington, DC? And they say, Well, don't take the metro. It's shut down. And you shouldn't take 495 either because there's a few accidents and it'll take hours to straighten it out. And you shouldn't take 66. It's, It's under construction. Man, there's a lot of traffic there. And oh, by the way, don't take 395 because everyone is taking that right about now. So you go, um Okay, I know what I sh- where I shouldn't go, I know what I shouldn't take, what should I do? Now why did I say that? Because this text today talks about something that all of us can relate to, the struggles of the flesh. Turn to your neighbor and say, I know you're struggling. <laughs> Everyone got really tense, like, how did they know? We're so good at doing what we ought not to do and not doing what we should do, as Apostle Paul so poetically put in Romans chapter 7. But from this passage this afternoon, I believe there's a few truths the Lord wants us to know today in terms of the very real struggle we have in the flesh. The first point is this. If you follow your flesh, you are challenging God. Turn to your neighbor and say, don't follow the flesh. Now we live in the midst of a culture that's driven by the sensual. You've heard before, if it feels good, then do it, right? That's Nike's statement, motto, just do it. Don't think about it, just do it. If it feels good, then do it. Well, Isaac and his favorite son, Esau, are pretty much the poster children for our present culture. These guys are driven, driven by their fleshly passions and total disregard for what was right and what God wanted. But I believe from their experience, we'll learn That when we follow our flesh, you'll see that there's a deeper spiritual impact that occurs. Okay, so the story starts off with Esau. Now, by the way, I bypassed the rest of chapter 25, but it was there that we would have met him. You all may have heard the story. I'm sure you guys have heard the story. But Esau was so driven by his appetite that he willingly sold his birthright for a bowl of stew. Esau, he ultimately didn't care, and maybe he even despised his birthright to the point where he allowed his flesh to lead him than what God wanted. So we have here in this chapter Esau all over again, but this time he's getting married twice. Now in his search for another wife, by the way, was he looking for a godly wife as his grandfather Abraham did for his father? Remember how the stipulations Abraham gave the servant Get all this and, and choose this for a godly, qualifications of a godly wife. Did Esau follow that? No, instead Esau simply marries a local Hittite woman, a pagan. And later on in chapter 28, we'll read that Esau, realizing how displeased these pagan women were to his parents, he goes off to marry yet another one. Esau had absolutely no regard for his parents, but more importantly, he had absolutely no regard for God. Because for Esau... He had one driving force in his life, and that was his flesh. His desire and his, every decision he made was all about what he wanted, and he was glad to defy God. So what happens is that Esau becomes a co-conspirator in his father Isaac's plan to give him the patriarchal blessing. Now, by the way, this wasn't Esau's idea. But Esau knew long ago that he sold his birthright, swearing an oath to his younger brother Jacob. But Esau, he didn't really care about that. He didn't care about the things like integrity. He was all about pleasing himself, living in the moment, living for himself, and seeking his own passions. But as bad as Esau was, he came across this ploy of receiving the blessing quite innocently. It was Isaac who was actually quite bad. He was as worse. It was Isaac who had been the most despicable character in the story. Because, firstly, Isaac was at odds with his wife. Secondly, he, he disliked, if maybe even hated, his younger son, Jacob. And lastly, he completely disregarded God's covenant promises. And all this started long ago in chapter 25. You see, the boys, Jacob and Esau, they grew up. And Esau was a bit different from Jacob, and Jacob was clearly different from Esau. Esau was a skillful hunter. Think of this. You got two sons. One's like the star college athlete, high school All-American athlete right? The one who's got guns, the one who, got, who, who wins championships. Esau was a skillful hunter. He was a man of the open country, the Bible says, and Jacob was the complete opposite. This guy was the quiet one. He's the one that says, likes to stay among the tents. <laughs> Everyone say, oh, Right? So we have Esau, the burly one, saying, Dad, I'm gonna win you the trophy, state championship. Woo, right? And then we got Jacob saying, Mom can't go to the library. Right? There's nothing wrong with that. But he was more of a quiet guy. He stayed among the tents. Isaac had a taste, the dad, he had a taste for wild game. So obviously he loved Esau, the one who can hunt wild game. But Rebecca, mommy, loved Jacob. It became my son Esau for Isaac and my son Jacob for Rebecca. Why such favoritism? It was because Isaac clearly liked venison. He loved deer meat. And Esau was a very good hunter. In other words, it's as simple as this. It was for the love of his stomach, his flesh, that Isaac disregarded God and favored Esau over Jacob. It was as simple as that. And what makes it worse is that Isaac is now planning his greatest act of defiance. So he calls Esau in and tells him to go hunting in order to make him his favorite food. Then Isaac will give him the patriarchal blessing. Now, by the way, this blessing, patriarchal blessing was a common practice. Usually it was a pretty big family event. The children would come gather around. There would be a feast of some kind and then the patriarch would pronounce his last will and testament. But where was the fanfare? Where were the children gathering around in front of old Grahams to see him bless the new head of the household? Where was the feast and the festivities? Where was the public fanfare of all that stuff for everyone to enjoy? There was none because Isaac was doing it all in secret. All in secret. Why? Because Isaac knew that this was not sanctioned by God. This was not sanctioned by God. This was not approved by God. Isaac knew that before the twins were born, God declared his will. The older will serve the younger. This means that Esau will serve Jacob. But there's one problem. Isaac preferred Esau, the older son, and so he set out to reverse the already revealed, the already stated will of God. But why? all because Isaac was driven by his senses, by his passion, by his appetite, by his flesh. His flesh and appetite were so strong, he was bound by his desire so much that he was willing to defy the very God who saved him and his father. He was willing to defy the very God who blessed him and his household. Folks, What God wants from us is clearly stated in Scripture. It's not unclear. It's not a mystery. Read the Bible and you will see what God wants. You will see the life that God wants us to live. You will see the things, the commands that God wants us to obey. But no, what do we do? We allow something called the flesh to get in the way, don't we? The love he wants us to extend to others oftentimes clashes with the desire for us to only receive love. I don't want to give it. I want to be a recipient of love The forgiveness we ought to extend, wars with our self-pity and self-victimization of what about me, what about my hurts, what about my pain. The grace we're so unwilling to extend is justified because we think, well, they brought upon themselves or they've never shown me grace. Or how about something like prayer and Bible reading? We'd rather sleep in or watch something than explore God's word, wouldn't we? Or how about evangelism? Our flesh tells us that we're weak, that we're dumb, that we can't do this, that we're theologically untrained. Our flesh tells us that the person will hate us and reject us, so the flesh instills the fear of man and our desire for self-preservation. The Bible repeatedly warns us of living this way. In 1 Peter chapter 2, we're reminded that we're only aliens or pilgrims in this world and to abstain from fleshly lust. Don't get too comfortable here. In Philippians chapter 3, where the Spirit describes wickedness as our stomachs being our gods, and shame is our glory, all because our minds are constantly on earthly things. We're warring right now. There's a battle within us. We want the things of the world, the things of our flesh. You know, I have a dog. <laughs> okay. And I know everyone's like, uh huh. I have a dog he's fairly typical. He barks, chases things, and he loves his, his toys. He loves his tennis balls, his playing tug-of-war stuff, rope, and all that stuff. And he gets quite possessive over his toys as well. So sometimes when I go and, and I go to him, he'll release a toy, but more often than not, he won't so i'll have to kind of yank it or pull it out of his mouth now when i bring out the toy he'll clamp down on it and he's possessive it's his toy he knows it's his i'm not chewing it the baby's not well the baby sometimes chews it right but it's, he knows it's his toy but what's interesting is when i bring out another toy he doesn't want to let go of the one he's already got in his mouth he knows he wants a new one too that one's better or it's different at least so he'll try to bite the new toy, all the while he has the old one still in his mouth. You can pretty much imagine what I'm talking about here. Well, that's what we're doing with our, in our lives too. We want more of God, don't you? I believe we want more of God. We want more of Jesus, but we just can't seem to let go of that old toy that's still in our mouth. We just can't. You've grown accustomed to it. It still tastes good. It's familiar. You can't hold to the things of God unless you let go of the things of the world. Period. Made for you, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's food. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's sexual gratification. Maybe it's the American comfort and dreams. But there's something that we need to understand. You can't have both. You can't. Our fleshly lusts are at constant odds with the work of God's Spirit in us. Every day we're throwing away our birthright. You know that? Every day. Every day we're squandering his blessing. Every day we're forfeiting some privileged status in the kingdom of God to know him and make him known, all because we've come to grown accustomed to gratifying the sensual desires of our flesh. You know, God's got something amazing in store for you. Each and every day, not just when you got married, not later down the road, but today. He's got something. And we're like, uh. I prefer that stew. I prefer that other thing. And we wonder, after all this time, why we haven't grown as much as we should have. Why we haven't spiritually grown. Why do you think that's the case? It's because we're following the wrong voice, the wrong spirit, the wrong leader. The one who grows are the ones who chooses to train themselves in the way of the Lord and listen to the voice of God. Don't think that this is something you can grow out of. That once you get married, once you have kids, once you retire, once you live more years than the person next to you or experience more than the person beside you, that you won't be driven by your appetite. The foolish heart is the foolish heart. It does not discriminate. The sinful, fleshy desires can't be uprooted with age or experience. I don't know what your weakness is. I only know my own. And we've all become rather good at identifying the speck in each other's eyes. But folks, we need to consider ourselves. What covetous spirit, okay? What covetous spirit is raising its ugly head in your heart today? What fleshly lust is filling your minds these days? What battle are you fighting that you're constantly losing in today? Whatever it is, it's not just a battle within yourself, but it is a battle of God's very truth in your life. Every time we surrender to our flesh, we're giving away more and more of ourselves to sin rather than giving ourselves more to God. Every time we say yes to the flesh, we're compromising the authority, the trustworthiness, and the impact of God's word in our lives. Following our flesh is an act against God's very truth. But not only that, another truth we need to learn today is this. He does not need our clever scheming. Okay, so we've heard the expression, the argument, the ends justify the means. In other words, it's a thought that the importance of what I am doing excuses the unethical ways in the, way, in, the, in the way in which I'm going about doing it. And that was Rebecca and Jacob's problem. So let's take a look at Rebecca. Now, we know that it was Rebecca that God first made the promise to, remember? Before the sons were born, God said the older will serve the younger. And so, if there was anyone who felt the weight of those words, it would be her. And so, when she realized that Isaac was about to pronounce a blessing—a blessing on Esau, the wrong son, the older son—she was obviously concerned. But the picture we're given here is not a picture of some godly woman at work. There was no indication that she went to her husband and said, "Honey, remember God's word. Remember His promise." Trust and have faith in him. Come back to the ways of God. No, there was not, no indication of that. Neither was there any evidence of her crying out to God saying, Lord, this is the problem. This is the complication. This is the scenario. God, remember the promise. Come, lead us in this. There was none of that either. Instead, she thought of something on her own. After all, Jacob was her baby. Jacob was her favorite he was her baby boy, and so we see Rebecca manipulating her husband, dragging her son into the scheme, plotting and maneuvering to get what she wants, no matter what the cost. Because like all the stories that we've heard so far from Genesis 1, if there's one thing the God of the universe who spoke life into being needs is help from us. So she devises a plan. Jacob will get her a couple of young goats she can make Isaac's favorite fruit just as good as Esau. She then covers Jacob with goat skins, making him feel hairy like his brother. And as I read this, all I could think of was, "That's one hairy man." She then finds one of Esau's favorite shirts to complete his disguise. But Jacob, not feeling all too comfortable about the plan of deception, he expresses some fears. But like good old scheming mother Rebecca said, "Don't worry." I'll take the curse for you now I've heard a couple different viewpoints regarding her action some people think okay fine her plan wasn't all that great it was deceitful but she was protecting God's will the end justifies the means that's all that matters and I get that look the time was coming close Isaac was near death. He was about to bless the wrong person. God's plan is about to be thwarted unless she bails God out. God does not need our little clever schemes. He doesn't. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need your intellect. He doesn't need your cleverness and all that stuff. Now, see, here's the thing. Jacob, he's right there with her. He acted pretty shrewd back when he got Esau to sell his birthright. But now he's kind of playing in the major leagues here, right? So sure, he questions his mom about the plan, but his question wasn't about, mom, is this right or is this wrong? (laughs) His question was, mom, what happens, what will happen if I get caught? Right? Hear me out. There is such a thing as doing things the right way and the wrong way in life here. Okay? There is such a thing as a right and wrong way. Rebecca and Jacob, they may have felt justified, but God he does not accomplish his word through deceit and manipulation. You get that? God does not accomplish his will through deceit and manipulation. Even apostle Paul makes that point in 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 5. If anyone competes as an athlete, he does not receive the victor's crown unless he competes according to the rules. He also says in 2 Corinthians 4, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth, plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience and the sight of God. That's just speak volumes for us right now. It certainly does for me as a preacher. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. There was a time when <clears throat> I tried to think of all the sad and emotionally tugging stories of my life. To evoke some sort of emotional response from the audience. Yeah. I would, I would really just be happy whenever I see people cry. Thinking that somehow if that were to happen, that they would get closer to God or something like that. Some pastors also believe that if their sermons were filled with anecdotes and funny illustrations, then people would be more inclined to come back again and obviously become a little more interested in the Word of God. Folks, God doesn't need you to add to the fragrance of the gospel. Okay? And how do we add to it? We think if we have a theological degree, that will help people understand God a little bit better. We think we need to be funny and charm people into coming to church. We think we need to be street smart or business savvy in order to be more financially giving or resourceful. Another way to look at it is is this. Have you ever thought, If only I complete this or obtain that or marry him or finish that, then I can get my life in order or I can start doing what I know God has already been calling me to do. God, he does not need you to add our clever scheming. He doesn't need us to add anything to what he's already asked us to do. And he certainly doesn't want us to use his ends to justify our questionable means. But there's one last thing to consider. Despite all that, despite how messed up everything is so far, God, he still saves us. After spending 32 weeks in Genesis, that's right, people, we've been doing this for 32 weeks, since last September. I'm sure many of you guys are thinking, man, these stories I've been hearing are far different from the stories I grew up with. Maybe Pastor David's just a really negative person. Maybe he just hates people. All these characters are so blemished, so broken. They're so disobedient. Why did I name my child after him or her? And that's the point. The Bible was never meant to lift up any one person because there was no one worthy to be lifted up except for Jesus. And so as we read the story, we see again, there is not one character here in whom we can delight in There's not a single person here in whom we can think anyone deserves God's blessings. There's literally not a single person here who has earned the right to continue on with God and his covenant promises. That's why the story is so shockingly powerful. Folks, when the scenery of humanity looks the darkest, that's when God's grace shines the brightest. And that's why when life is dark, we can all still have glorious hope. Not hope in humanity, but hope of glory in Christ Jesus. Amen? You see, when we learn that God, He saves us in spite of ourselves... And so God, he uses even the wickedness of men to bring about his sovereign purposes. God had decreed that Jacob was his chosen one. And sure enough, Jacob receives the blessing in spite of Isaac's intentions to do otherwise. And in spite of Jacob's own uh, failings and sins, Isaac wanted to bless Esau with wealth and power. But that eventually came upon Jacob. He ended up receiving the blessing of abundance of land. The blessing of total lordship or Ownership and the blessing of protection from the Lord. But this blessing we know is not just about the older serving the younger. This blessing is not just about Jacob ruling over Esau. It's a prophetic blessing of the coming Messiah of Jesus. Because it's Jesus who will inherit the whole earth. It's Jesus who is exalted as Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. And it's Jesus who has the protection and the guarantee of success from God the Father himself. Even the wickedness of man cannot thwart the will of God. As Jesus hung on that cross, the religious leaders thought they finally got Jesus. Pilate thought he finally got Jesus. The hateful crowd thought they finally got Jesus. Satan thought he finally got Jesus, but no. What they don't understand is that because of the will of God, despite the wickedness of man, even though it was our sins that put Jesus up there, it was by his grace that we were all, you and I, finally able to get Jesus. God has allowed us to see all the sin of our lives so that we might know that his salvation is all about his work, his grace, and not a single thing about you. The truth is, You and I are no better than Esau or Isaac or Rebekah and Jacob. We all need mercy. But that's exactly the saving plan of God. And so today, there's one question that we all have to consider. How will you respond to God's grace today? How will you respond to God's grace? Esau saw what happened, and he responded with bitter resentment. It's Jacob's fault. No wonder his name is Jacob, that deceiver, And Esau wept bitterly before his father. But remember, it was Esau who sold his birthright. Where was his repentance at that time? The promise was clear from God. He would have to submit and serve his younger brother. But in that, he would be a participant in that blessing. He would be a part of that blessing. But what was Esau's response to all that? His answer was to kill Jacob instead. Sadly, that's how many people respond to God's grace in Jesus. It's not fair that God requires faith in Jesus. I don't want murderers and rapists and criminals and those who have attacked my faith and my way of life to receive grace. Or maybe we say things like, it's not fair that God's blessings appear more evident in other people's lives, not mine. It's not fair that they seem to be more blessed than me. It's not fair that I have to submit myself to him or to her. I'm not going to serve them or love them or forgive them because they have no idea what I've gone through. They have no idea of my pain, of my trials, and all that is just stubbornness. That all that is is just stubbornness and the unbelieving bitterness of Esau. And the Lord calls you today to turn away from it. Instead, he calls us to see the light like Isaac eventually did. And this here is really the only bright spot in the story. When Isaac realized that he had inadvertently blessed Jacob rather than Esau, notice what he did in verse 33. He trembled violently. We're not told why, but we can kind of figure it out. It wasn't just anger at Jacob. No, it was Isaac suddenly realizing at that moment he was dealing with the sovereign God, with the sovereign God who had obstructed Isaac's wicked plan and brought about exactly what he had promised, that the older shall serve the younger. And we know that that's what Isaac thought because what he said next, you see, Isaac didn't try to undo the blessing. He didn't try to change the blessing of Jacob. Instead, he says to Esau, I blessed Jacob, that's a fact, it's past, and so therefore he will be blessed. It took a long time, but Isaac finally acted in faith. That's why in the book of Hebrews we are told in one line, but it's a testimony of faith. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. So what's the main point today, guys? Do steps one through three and you'll be able to conquer the flesh and the lusts of your life and the sins of your life? No, it's this though you have failed yourself though you have failed your family though you have failed your lord though you may have intentionally tried to undo god's plans by compromising the means to justify the end though you have been driven by your fleshly desires for years to the point that it has destroyed your relationships it has destroyed your marriage it has destroyed your friendships it has destroyed everything your friends your children your relationships with every single person by the word of God that has been revealed to us today, I call you to recognize that our sovereign God is working his salvation in you. I call you in the name of God to repent, to turn around and trust him. Accept his ways. And today he says, abandon your ways. Don't live a reactionary Christian life. No, instead, train yourself in the way you should go. Train yourself in the way of the Lord. Don't say, I can't do this because the flesh wants it. Instead, walk in the Spirit because God wants it. Day by day, trust in the freedom that you have in Christ to grow deeper in your walk with Him. In Christ, we have the mind of Christ. We have the Spirit of Christ. Therefore, we too can live a life of Christ. Pour yourself into his life every day and you will see an increasing love for him and a decreasing love for the world. That is how we combat the flesh. Amen? Let's pray. Friends, let's take a moment and pray. Simply in response to what you've heard. I don't want to add any more words. I don't want to add any more thoughts. The way that God has spoken to you from this message the various convictions that you receive with the things that you are dealing with, your flesh, the things that you've compromised, your perhaps version of justifying the, the the means for the end, all that stuff. What is it? And whatever it is, God says, repent of it. Because I want to restore you. I want you to know that I am better than anything that the world has to offer. I can give you more I can give you peace and satisfaction. You see, today's a day where we have to respond to his grace because his grace is here. His presence is here. Let's take a moment and pray and reflect and meditate on what you've heard and we'll go into our last final song.